Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today I'm speaking to the British journalist Luke Harding. He's an award-winning foreign correspondent with The Guardian. He's reported from Delhi, Berlin and Moscow, as well as having covered wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, Libya and Syria. Between 2007 and 2011, he was The Guardian's Moscow bureau chief, before being expelled from the country in the first case of its kind since the Cold War. He's written nine books, two of which, The Fifth Estate and Snowden, have been made into films. His latest work is the first book of reportage from the front line of the Ukraine war. It's called Invasion, Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival. Luke Harding, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you. Great to be with you. I wanted to go right back and talk about your time in Russia as as The Guardian's Moscow bureau chief. You first arrived there in 2007. You spoke the language, I understand. At that point, not terribly well. Basically, I'd been in Berlin and uh, my then foreign editor boss came to see me and said rather kind of Delphically that, that I needed a bigger canvas. And the bigger canvas turned out to be Moscow. So I started learning Russian the next day. I mean, that, now I'm fluent, but it's possibly the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, but it has turned out to be quite useful in chronicling Russia's kind of dark rise and of course what's been happening in Ukraine since last year. Mm. Between 2007 and 2011 you must have seen huge changes in Russia. Well I I sort of arrived as a a kind of blank sheet I mean as you sort of said in your introduction I I was a pretty experienced foreign correspondent and uh, I did all of those sort of disastrous wars in 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 the noughties and, and spent a lot of time in South Asia and in Baghdad and felt that I was adaptable and could really do pretty much anything. And what sort of greeted me when I arrived in in Moscow was, first of all, a spy scandal. You remember the murder of Alexander Litvinenko Mm. in the autumn of 2006 with a radioactive cup of tea, which had really kind of poisoned, literally and metaphorically, relations between London and Moscow. So there was a real mood of acrimony. And pretty quickly, I found myself in a a, a sort of second-rate sub-John le Carre spy drama with Russian secret agents following me around the icy streets of Moscow and mysterious break-ins at our apartment, which the, the British embassy kind of told us was was now bugged. And this was all the work of the FSB, the security service that Putin used to run, basically the KGB, before he became prime minister and president. And I think the sort of key point is that Russia, you know, back then was presenting itself as a democracy. And actually the, the reality was the reverse, that, that Putin had pretty systematically destroyed all aspects of democracy, whether it was parliaments, independent TV, the courts, and was shunting Russia in a more and more authoritarian direction. And also, what was clear was was that this this was a country that was internationally dangerous and felt it had claims over its post-Soviet neighbours. And you actually got thrown out. I mean, your visa was rescinded. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's a gentle way of putting it. I mean, as I was saying, we, we, we had all of these kind of break-ins and pretty pretty obvious hints from the Russian foreign ministry that they were very unhappy with my reporting. And I think, I mean, they never kind of fully spelt out what I'd done wrong in their eyes. But I think one thing was my pursuit of the Litvinenko story and, and looking at the, the role of the Russian secret state in in killing him in dramatic fashion in London. The other was I went to to Chechnya quite often in the North Caucasus where there was a big underreported war going on between Islamist rebels and, and federal security forces. And the other thing I did was to ask quite an interesting question, which is how much money does Vladimir Putin have? answer, he's the richest man in the world. But of course, all of this is held via a series of of proxies. Most of it is offshore. And the state and its resources are his. And, you know, the reward, I think, for my over curiosity, as they would see it, was that when I when I flew back, having written a book, 
and having reported on leaked US State Department cables, which describe Russia as a mafia state, I was um, stopped at passport control. This is February 2011 and told by a young pasty faced official from the FSB that for me, Russia was closed. Hmm. Then I was put in a deportation zone, basically a, a cell holding cell. And then I was kicked out. And that, that was the end of my Russian career in Russia. And you've never been back. Well, I've never been back. And, and actually, the Russian foreign ministry this summer, after the invasion of Ukraine or full scale invasion, put me on a, a public list of people they don't like who are banned for life. There are about 30 of us sort of senior journalists and correspondents. And I was on it. So well, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, I guess. <laughs> um, this is a wonderful book. I mean, it's billed as the first rough draft of history and really tells a personal story. But it's also a, a much broader rundown of the events of the war and also of the history of the reason that Russia and Putin in particular felt that this was something he needed to pursue. Tell us Putin's thinking. Yeah, I mean, Putin's made no secret over a pretty long period of time that, that he loathes Ukraine, does not consider it to be a state or a country or a sovereign entity. He, he thinks, he said previously, that it's a cobbled together place and home to millions of ethnic Russians who, who he thinks basically should be part of the Russian empire. And I think we're in a sort of period now which you might call late dictatorship and and with Putin suffering from from dictator syndrome and he's been in power for more than two decades and in the summer of 2021 he published this extraordinary essay on the Kremlin website with the rather unpromising title of of the historical unity of Ukrainians and Russians and basically he set out his thesis or pseudo thesis I think is a more accurate description where he argues that Ukraine is historical Russia that there was a sort of common civilizational origin in 9th century Kiev that that sort of Prince Vladimir or Volodymyr embraced um, orthodoxy, orthodox religion, and founded Russian civilization. And, and that, that basically that, that there has never been any kind of real division between Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. They're a single spiritual, cultural language whole. And that what he is doing by invading Ukraine, I mean, that this essay was a sort of predicate for, for, for what happened next is simply restoring a unity which has been sundered by by the West, and not only the West, but he, he essentially in this essay, he blames the Mongols who overran Kiev and Rus in, in the 13th century. He blames the Poles, because for a long time, Ukraine was part of a Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And latterly, of course, he blames the West for meddling in, in what he regards as essentially his sphere. And also, interestingly, he blames Lenin, who set up the Ukraine as a socialist republic in the 1920s mm. and gave it co-equal status to the Russian Federation. So there's a whole series of historical grudges. I mean, I've, I've talked to professors who say this is a kind of mediocre and derivative essay. It's, it's wrong and accurate and so on. But Putin believes it. And unfortunately, the people around him believe it too. Mm. And I mean, you, you take us back to, I mean, obviously, the, the murder of, of Litvinenko, which you've written about extensively. But you also talk about the fact that less than two years after that, Putin then invaded Georgia, which in a way was a dress rehearsal for what he would then do in Crimea and the Donbass. Yes, and, and I covered that war for The Guardian. I mean, I, I was in Tbilisi and in Gori and watching, essentially, at one point I actually hopped in my car and followed a column of Russian tanks heading towards Tbilisi, the capital, unsure whether they were going to seize it, depose Georgia's pro-Western leader, Mikhail Saakashvili, or do something else. And, and about 40 kilometers shy of Tbilisi, they turned left and parked up for the night. But 
basically, Putin was making it very clear that he did not want, I mean, at that point he was prime minister, but he did not want Georgia or indeed any post-Soviet state to integrate with the West, whether that was NATO, the transatlantic military alliance, whether that was the European Union. And not only did he not want it, that he was, he was prepared to use military force to stop it. And I think that's right. That was a dress rehearsal. And in a previous book, a memoir I wrote about my period in Russia called Mafia State, which Faber, my publisher, sort of reissued last year. After the war in Georgia, I went to Crimea and I wrote a long piece for The Guardian, long piece of The Guardian, basically exploring the idea that Russia might seize Crimea and how simple, straightforward it would be to raise the Russian trickler above Sevastopol, the port where a whole lot of Russian sailors were already based. And, you know, Georgina, I'm not saying that I am Nostradamus, but basically that's precisely what happened about four years later. Yeah, yeah. Now, you have a fascinating chapter about Putin going off to Siberia with his Minister of Defence and this extraordinary person they met there. You mentioned Nostradamus earlier. Well, it seems like perhaps they saw their own version. Well, look, to be clear, I, I don't know that this version is true. I, I just know that people are talking about it and it's being discussed not as fantasy, but but as, as something that's very plausible, given given how mystical and weird the Kremlin is. But, but, but the story goes like this, that Putin and Shoigu in the spring of 2021 went off on a, a hiking holiday in the wilderness and, and supposedly, according to the mayor of Lviv, a guy called Andrei Sadovi, who, whom I interviewed, they went to go and consult with a shaman. And the shaman said, you know, Vladimir Vladimirovich, that's Putin, you are tasked with a sort of special and holy mission to to reunite lost Russian lands. And, and not only that, Vladimir Vladimirovich, I'm going to give you a date when you should do this. And that date is 2202-2022, which is the day when Putin basically gave the order for the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's February of 2022. Now, you might say that that's nonsense, it's crazy, but but what we what we can say is that after that holiday, suddenly Russian troops, tanks, anti-aircraft systems started trundling towards the Ukraine border in what looked like a kind of well, they were withdrawn and then they re-trundled in, in the autumn. And of course that that was indeed the invasion. Yeah. Now the night before the invasion, on the twenty-third of February, you were having dinner with our mutual friends Andre and Elizabeth Kirkhoff. Andre Kirkhoff, of course, the great Ukrainian novelist and journalist. And the book begins with that dinner. And I just wonder if you could tell us about that evening. The uh, Brazilian ambassador was there. You ate borscht. It sounded wonderful. But I wonder how concerned you all were at the thought of war. A lot of people, a lot of governments, in fact, including the, the French and the German governments, thought that this was a kind of faint, uh, a bluff. And I, by contrast, thought that actually Putin was going to invade or at least do some kind of large scale military operation, whether it was the east or, or somewhere else, I didn't know. But with Putin, it's always good to to bank on the worst option. So I'd been in Ukraine pretty pretty solidly from, from December. I'd been on the front line in Donbass. In January and February, I was in Kiev. I also went to Mariupol in the east of the country. And it's fair to say that most Ukrainians did not take this threat very seriously, including Volodymyr Zelensky, the president. But by, by the week of the dinner party, Putin had effectively recognized the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, the, these sort of pseudo entities um, run by Russian proxies in the east of Ukraine on territory that the Russia had effectively stolen back in 2014. And it was clear that war was coming. And so we, we had this dinner in the shadow of war. Andre, delightful guy, as you know, was still, I think, relatively optimistic. And we were looking at material that, that he was using as a basis for a forthcoming novel, which were secret police files from the Cheka, the, the early KGB, round about the time of just after the Bolshevik Revolution, when the Red Army swept in, arrested all sorts of Ukrainian 
patriots and there were sort of interrogation files and, and other records, photographs. And it just seemed to me that history was repeating, that, that actually the Russians were going to come in again and try, if they could, to sort of snuff out snuff out Ukraine in its entirety. And after this wonderful dinner, I embraced Andre and his wife Elizabeth, went out into the street, and I took a call from a contact of mine who'd been in the Ukrainian foreign ministry. And he just said a few words as I looked at this sort of dark velvet sky. He said, the invasion will begin at 4 a.m. And, and that's more or less what happened. I mean, absolutely chilling. And you capture this the whole way through the book. It's wonderfully told. It is like reading a thriller. But I wonder how you go about documenting history as it happens. Yeah, I mean, that that's a good question. I mean, I, I felt, without sounding pretentious, I, I just felt a calling. I just felt I had to write this book. It was just what was happening, you know, to have a front row seat on history, on this enormous episode. I, I just felt I had to tell it and also tell the human story. I mean, you know, we, we, we focus so much on geopolitics and what governments say and what foreigners say. And actually, when it came home to me was a few hours after the invasion, about sort of six in the morning, when I was sitting in the bomb shelter of the hotel where I was staying in the center of Kiev, quite close to the, the Golden Gate. And a family came in, a mum came in with two kids and they'd been yanked out of bed and she just sat them on, on a couple of adult hotel chairs and they started sort of filling in their coloring books. And I just realized that this was a horror show and, and that the people who, who were going to die, because this always happens in war, were, were perhaps not, not only soldiers, but they were civilians, mm. uh, kids, women, children. And I just thought I had to tell a story. And so I would do these, these long, intense sort of trips to Ukraine. I do about three or four weeks. I come back to, to my home outside London and I would take one day off. And then the next morning I would get up and I would write. And so, some of those chapters, Georgina, I mean, the chapters on Butcher and Mariupol, they were hard to write. And they're very, very difficult to read. I mean, you don't spare us and it. Just Even just reading where you document how people have written very sparse accounts of, of who's died, where they've been buried, how old they were. And you just realise, looking at those names, yes, it could be any of us. One of them, I noticed, died on my birthday. And that really just suddenly brought it home to me. Yeah, and what we've seen, I mean, I mean, you know, Bucha was awful because essentially the Russian army got stuck. It was not expecting any kind of resistance. That sort of Putin's commanders had told the troops that the Ukrainians would greet them with flowers. I mean, because this was the Kremlin propaganda fantasy, and of course they didn't. They greeted them with sort of fire and fury, and with with the army with artillery strikes. And so what Russian soldiers did was turn on the civilian population. I mean, in areas they occupied, and in in, in Mariupol, in, in the far east of the country close to the old front line with kind of Russian proxies, the Donetsk People's Republic, the Russian army annihilated an entire city of nearly half a million people using aerial bombs, dropping ballistic missiles on a theater full of women and children, just smashing up residential neighborhoods where people were cowering. And I mean, Zelensky and the people around him that say that this is genocide. And having seen what I've seen, it's hard to disagree. I mean, tens of thousands of people have been killed by Russian bombs. We've seen nothing like this since the Second World War, and it's been harrowing. Zelensky himself seemed to change. I mean, obviously, we know he began as, a, as an actor, as a comedian, but at the beginning, you write that he hoped Putin might be appeased and that he refused to call him to call Putin an aggressor. Yeah, I mean, I mean this is sort of one of the, the forgotten paradoxes of the situation is that when Zelensky 
comedian, actor, famous in Ukraine, well-known, kind of beloved entertainer, really, when he entered politics, he was a sort of peacenik. He, he basically, one of the reasons he won such a huge landslide was that he said, look, I am the guy who can fix the war in the East, bring about a ceasefire, sit across the table with Vladimir Putin and negotiate. And Petro Poroshenko, the incumbent president, by contrast, was far more hawkish. Also, I'd say perhaps more, more pragmatic. I mean, sort of understood how the, the game of post-Soviet politics was played. And of course, this didn't work. I mean, there were a few prisoner exchanges. The Ukrainians did a ceasefire. And pretty quickly, Zelensky realized the Russians were still shooting, the Ukrainian soldiers were dying. And in January and February of, of, of last year, of 2022, his opinion poll ratings were falling. I mean, he was still popular, but but actually, he was kind of a little bit struggling. And then the war comes along, and he transforms in this chameleonic way that actors can do into what I would say is a great wartime leader, as someone who, whose video address is extremely powerful, watched by, by many Ukrainians as, as a way of sort of boosting morale and kind of amplifying the, the national mood of defiance, but also this incredible emotional outreach to, to the democratic world, to the civilized world, saying this is not a, a local struggle between unruly neighbors who've fallen out. This is a struggle for values. It's your struggle for, for decency, for international law. It's a struggle good versus evil. Mm. And he, he used kind of Lord of the Rings metaphors. I mean, everyone in Ukraine describes Russian soldiers as orcs straight out of Tolkien. And it's incredibly effective to the point where I think now he can claim with justification to be to be the leader of the free world and, and certainly the, the planet's foremost politician. In that same chapter, Horizontal, you also describe Snake Island. Yes, the thing I forgot to mention is the, is the humour and the fact that Ukrainians are probably, more than any other country, the world's sort of best memists or meme artists or whatever you, you call it. But Snake Island is this tiny island in the northwest of the Black Sea where there was a small garrison basically of Ukrainian soldiers and border guards defending it. And on the morning of invasion, it was pounded by Russian warships. And there was this famous exchange with the Moskva, which is basically a kind of modern dreadnought, 500 meters long, 500 crew, just a kind of mincing machine on the sea. And I interviewed the, the head of the, the border guard uh, service, a, a nice guy, rather taciturn guy called Bogdan, who, who was in the room when this exchange happened. But essentially, the Moskva said, surrender, lay down your arms, or we will destroy you. And the reply, after a bit of kind of muffled consultation from the Ukrainian guards in the radio transmission tower was, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. And essentially, this Russian warship, go fuck yourself, encapsulated the kind of U Ukraine's bitter answer to what was an overweening and arrogant assault by Russia to take over and destroy their country. Go, go fuck yourself. And... What happened was, of course, the Russians took the island. The assumption was that all of these defenders were dead. In fact, they weren't. They were taken prisoner. And I, I write all about that in my book. But this this slogan, you know, Russian warship, go fuck yourself, was commemorated in, in stamps. It was on checkpoints. It was on soldiers' uniforms, on packets of coffee. It just went viral. It went everywhere. And of course, you know, the, the postscript was itself remarkable. That a stamp of a Russian soldier doing a V sign to the warship came out on April the, the 12th of last year, 2022. Two days later, the Ukrainians sank the Moskva warship, which is now at the bottom <laughs> of the Black Sea. As, as I kind of write, it fucked off. It, it fucked itself. <laughs> and do you think that that humour is perhaps one of the things that distinguishes this war from others that you've covered, perhaps in Afghanistan or, or Iraq? Yeah, I, I think it is, because what you have to understand is that Zelensky and his team, 
they're, they're all they're all TV showrunners. I, I mean, a lot of the people in government are former journalists who understand the power of language. That language is a weapon of war. Understand that that a, a MacBook Air is as powerful as as an artillery battery. That, that this is a way of getting the message across. And they're they're just incredibly deft. They they realize that that it's good to be funny. That it's good to to take a swipe at, at Putin, who really kind of conforms to to the sort of TV villain baddie. I mean, he's this rather small, paranoid, conspiratorial man who deep down, you can see, is a coward. I mean, Zelensky goes to the front line. He hands medals to his troops. He does it all the time. He was recently in Bakhmut, which is the epicenter of this huge battle in the east. And, and you can see him giving these medals to these soldiers, knowing that the men of the men in the room, that, that in six months' time, half of them will be dead. Mm-hmm. Basically, they'll be ghosts. And Putin, by contrast, the defining image of the Putin presidency is, is of this small man sitting at one end of a very long table with some unfortunate underling at the other end. And it's it's a bit like the sort of death of Stalin, the Amanda Iannucci film. I mean, it's it's darkly funny. And the Ukrainians, of course, point this out as often as they can. Now, the book came out in November. It must have been very difficult to stop writing or to know when to stop writing. Whether a book's ending is happy or not depends on when you stop writing it. And, of course, the war continues. Yes, I mean, that that's right. I will, later this year, I will update it for a paperback edition. So I, I will write some more. I mean, the thing that, that fell off, although I managed to get some of it in, but I spent a lot of time in areas which Ukraine managed to liberate. So I was in the northeast, in the province of uh, Kharkiv, cities like Azum, watching a mass grave being exhumed, talking to victims of torture. And then on my last reporting trip, I was um, in Kherson province in the south, which was which was liberated in November, and where actually there's a massive war going on with the Russians just over the other side of the Dnieper River, and you can hear the booms of artillery, you can hear the whooshes of grab missiles, where the Russians are just shelling everything in a pretty chaotic and wanton way with a goal of instilling terror and killing killing as many civilians as possible. So, I mean, I think the choice before you as a writer is either you can wait ten years when when this is all near history and and try and produce an account then or actually you can capture what's going on at the moment and I, I just felt I had to to do it I wanted to write a book that was readable that was colorful that gave you a, a flavor of, of, of battle and also some of the bigger political conversations but most of all I wanted to invite people to to look at the Ukraine conflict with empathy for the people who are in it and I wanted to write with passion and moral clarity. Which you've absolutely done. I mean, I would say this book is complete, essential reading. Uh, just before we go, of course, I've got to ask you what you think is going to happen. Well, Georgina, I mean, I'd sort of like to tell you that, that it will end soon, but I don't think it will. I think both sides are entrenched. I mean, for Ukraine, it's existential. So many people have died. So many children have lost their parents. So many women have lost their husbands. So many parents have lost their, their young sons. And uh, so I think now the mood is unyielding that Ukraine wants everything back, including Crimea, which is going to be very hard to achieve. And over in Moscow for Vladimir Putin, it's it's also kind of existential because if he fails in, in Ukraine, this ghastly war of choice, imperial invasion, then it's got clear implications for his, his rule and possibly his personal survival. So he has to win or at least he has to reach a point where he can present a victory to Russia. So I think the war will continue. And what Ukraine needs is for the West to hold its nerve, to, to continue to supply it with sophisticated weapons so it can it can finish the job. 
but I would not expect it to finish by summer. And I suspect, I'm afraid, that this time next year, the war will still be going on. Luke, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Luke Harding, Invasion, Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival, is published by Faber, and really, you need to read it. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer, Nora Hall. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.